WDBM East Lansing. The impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, Damascus was tense as clashes between the Syrian army and rebels near the city center extended into a third day, with government forces throwing a security cordon around some embattled neighborhoods, firing from helicopters and reinforcing the number of tanks in the street, according to the New York Times. The urban combat in Damascus overshadowed international diplomacy aimed at halting the Syria conflict, which intensified ahead of a United Nations Security Council vote this week on whether to extend the mission of 300 United Nations monitors who have been basically trapped in their hotel rooms since last month, their work suspended. In national news today, the FBI has opened an investigation after needles were found in sandwiches served on four Delta Airlines flights bound for the U.S. from the Netherlands. According to the BBC, the needles, which the authorities said appeared to be sewing needles, were found in five sandwiches prepared by the Amsterdam-based Gate Gourmet. One person flying to Minneapolis was injured. Needles were also found on two flights to Atlanta and one to Seattle. In Michigan news, Michigan's Secretary of State will soon ask again for access to immigration records, according to Michigan Radio. The intent is to find non-American citizens who may have inadvertently registered to vote in Michigan. For years, a person applying for a driver's license in Michigan would be encouraged to register to vote without a check first to see if the person was actually a U.S. citizen. We're going to have a great show today here on Impact Exposure. We'll be talking um, to a Michigan State grad uh, who is now joining Venture for America. It's kind of a new program that is kind of based off of the Teach for America model, where you spend two years um, in a city, uh, in this case, kind of a low-income city such as Detroit, um, and work at startups to become an entrepreneur. So we'll be talking to him about that program. Also on the show, we'll talk about the Refugee Development Center and how the large refugee population here in Lansing is coping with life in the U.S. But now on the phone is Sarah and Jeff Tao. They are about to swim a 50-mile marathon halfway across Lake Michigan, and they aren't going to do it to compete a race. They are doing it to raise awareness for postpartum depression. Sarah and Jeff are on the phone to talk about their organization through the blue. Welcome to the show, Sarah and Jeff. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. So first off, um, I'm curious as to... Um, what what sparked the idea to swim across or halfway across Michigan to support the idea of postpartum depression or awareness? Yeah, um, I can take that one because it was actually something um, that came to my mind. But um, it's actually a full ultramarathon swim across Lake Michigan at midpoint. So it's from starting from Three Rivers, Wisconsin to uh, Big Sable Lighthouse in, in Ludington, Michigan. So it's a full swim across the lake. And the idea came about, actually, um, one morning I woke up and I said to Jeff, I said, you know, how far is it across Lake Michigan? And he said, oh, you know, 40, 50 miles. And I said, we should swim it. Mm. And um, he agreed. So <laughs> it was something we decided to take on and tie in a lot of our personal experiences that we had. We both suffered, actually, from postpartum depression, but we didn't know it at the time. We, were, we went undiagnosed. Uh, so it was a real personal journey for us, and uh, we now know and uh, at the time figured that other people were suffering as well and may not be aware of it or exactly what it entails um, because there's so much misinformation out there. So we decided to take this on as a personal journey as well as a way to raise awareness. So, Sarah, can you tell me a little bit um, about postpartum depression? You were obviously influenced um by it. Uh, what What is that like and how are you able to maybe overcome it? Yeah, you know, it's uh, one of those things as you, you, when you first have a, a child, I think people kind of go into going into it figuring that there's going to be kind of this new normal or this way of adjusting to this new baby. But um, for me, unfortunately, I, I went through the typical, I've had a, a very pretty much typical labor and birth. Uh, afterwards, I did go through the baby blues. Uh, but unfortunately, that did not go away, and I had an, a tremendous amount of anxiety. Uh, I also had intrusive thoughts, which was probably the most scariest experience, 
where I pictured my daughter getting hurt or me hurting her or accidentally hurting her or, um, you know, it was very, very disturbing and uh, it really affected my bonding with her because I was almost afraid to even hold her. Um, So I was very much, um, you know, trying to get through all that. As well as a lot of, I showed a lot of physical signs. Uh, I didn't sleep. I lost a tremendous amount of weight, um, and I just didn't. I, I, I just was just a very awkward and difficult time. Jeff and I didn't communicate. Um, so there's so many different levels of perinatal mood disorders. Is actually the umbrella, and underneath that, postpartum depression falls. But we use that term because more people understand it. But there's actually a lot of other disorders that fall with within um, within perinatal mood disorders as a overriding name for the disorder. And is there an explanation as to what causes postpartum depression? Uh, unfortunately, we know we don't know exactly why it occurs. Many people feel it's chemical imbalance, uh, but we know now that's not necessarily true. It can be situational. We see it in dads, uh, as I mentioned. Both of us suffered. One in ten dads um, can and can suffer from this illness and also adoptive parents, we see it. So there's a lot of things that can play into why people suffer. Um, So that's why it's so important for people to understand all of the symptoms, why it may occur, and then be aware of it so that if they see a loved one that may be experiencing some of those symptoms, that they can get them help right away. Because it really is preventable, or at least if they do have it, there is uh, wonderful help out there. So I'm curious to hear, uh, Jeff, your experience with postpartum depression. What is that like um, to be a father and have to go through that? Um, it was, like Sarah was saying, it was a difficult time for us For us both. We, we both assumed this was kind of what it's like to be parents and that you were dealing with all these kinds of issues. But as it extended longer, uh, both of us sort of, and it's interesting, at the time we didn't, like Sarah said, we didn't know what was going on exactly, and we kept it to ourselves. I actually thought that Sarah was doing okay, and she actually thought that I was doing okay, but inside we were both really suffering. For me it was, it was uh, I felt very withdrawn, I felt unable to bond with the baby. Um, I, I had this real fight or flight kind of feeling like I needed to get out of there, and in fact it was about three months after my daughter was born, um, I took off on a motorcycle trip for a week with, with some friends, and that was that was a real turning point for me because it really that was when I started to see uh, how that Sarah was really hurting and really that was a really hurtful time and it was, she was really suffering. And for me, when I came back, I actually w- had a better perspective on everything, oddly enough, and it helped me kind of get through some things. I mean, I certainly don't recommend that, you know, mm-hmm. people just to take off because it can be very damaging, uh, but it ended up being a more positive experience on the end, even though it was a pretty rough, rough time. And both of you, um, through your experiences, started organizations to help others, um, both men and women that are going through postpartum depression. Can you talk about those organizations? On Sarah's side, you you came up with Mom's Bloom, and then Jeff, you're you're doing Dad's Grow. Can you talk about those organizations? Sure. Yeah, Mom's Bloom started with, after obviously my experience, uh, but also I was finding that there was a big gap within the community that families who had one baby or more were not getting the support that they needed emotionally and physically. Uh, So Moms Bloom was started by three moms, and we found ways of recruiting and training volunteers in the community that could then go into homes and provide that emotional, physical support that so many families need after they've had a newborn with extended family, not living close by, going back to work, uh, a lot of the stresses that families are dealing with on a daily basis, we are finding that families were really struggling. So through this, we were able to create Moms Bloom, which is a nonprofit, and we're able to provide the service for free regardless of income. We just felt that every family should have access to this type of support. So uh, that's how that came to be, and um, we started serving 35 families in 2008, and now we are serving uh, close to or possibly over 250 this year. And what what advice do you have to people that are going through postpartum depression? You know, what is is the best way, you know, for you to say, you know, to to be able to get out uh, out of the funk? Well, I think, and Jeff would probably agree, is to ask for help. 
mm-hmm. um, is the number one thing, is not to be afraid to share your experience with a trusted friend, doctor, uh, anybody that you feel that you can share what you're thinking and feeling. For me, it was a lot of the social networks, getting out and talking with other moms that were experiencing some of the same same things. And unfortunately, we're not always open or willing to share what we're feeling, so that can sometimes be a barrier. Um, but really reaching out, uh, there's a lot of wonderful forums, even online, uh, if you're not comfortable getting outside um, in the community, just even getting on the computer. I still think that face-to-face is great, but sometimes just starting out and getting online and connecting with some other moms or dads uh, and uh, getting the, the, the courage to kind of get out there and talk to others. Um, but certainly if you're experiencing anything like I was in terms of intrusive thoughts or um, even further than that of you feeling like you could harm your baby or yourself, that's a definite emergency where we need to get some help um, right away. Uh, and there's wonderful counselors that specialize in postpartum depression. Uh, the hospitals are supposed to be trained or at least have some of the knowledge so that they can help a family. So it's a very, very scary time um, if you are experiencing that. So uh, I just really encourage people to reach out, get some help. And anybody is certainly welcome to contact Moms Bloom uh, or Dads Grow, and uh, we would certainly direct you in the right, right places. So when it comes to this raising awareness for postpartum depression, depression is it just the two of you guys that will be swimming uh, halfway across lake michigan um it is it is the two of it's just the two of us and actually like sarah said earlier we actually are swimming the full distance oh the full distance okay yeah from across across the lake it's at there's a lot of different points you can swim from but this is the midpoint north to south and it's about it's a roughly 50 mile journey and it's just the two of us and we've been been working hard to to get the word out across you know, through Facebook, through websites, through speaking with people, through speaking engagements, through different ways that we can tell people the story, that tell people our stories, and hopefully inspire them to get help. In fact, one of the one of the best stories about this entire journey, which started for us last August, was that after we made the official announcement that we were doing this, I think that was early January, uh, to the public. About a week later, we got a message uh, from a, f- a mutual friend who said that a a woman had heard our story and had watched one of our videos that we had posted online, and it prompted her to actually go and, and get help because she realized at that point that she was actually suffering from postpartum depression. And we felt that was almost this really this defining moment in this campaign, I guess you could call it, that you know, we realized we actually reached out and helped someone, and we know, and we thought, wow, you know what, there are more people like that, and that was just a motivator to to keep this really rolling. How long do you think it's going to take for you guys to swim all the way across Lake Michigan? Um, It's been done at this location once before uh, by Jim Dreyer in 1998, and it took him 41 hours. Oh my gosh! So, yeah. are you, are you, do you get to take any breaks, or do you just go all the way through? All the way through, with we'll stop and tread water to, you know, get refueled and rehydrated and everything every every so often. But we're we're aiming for a thirty hour swim if weather is is good. But we hope to not be over thirty five hours. I mean, so much of it is dependent on the weather. So mm-hmm. if you know, what are the waves? What's the temperature? Where you know how's the current flowing? So we're we're at the mercy of that of that lake <laughs> in a lot of ways, but we'll do our best to pick a good 48-hour window to go, and then we'll jump in and go. And how do you train for an event like that? Um, swim a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we've been on a training schedule that we actually worked with Jim Dreyer to, to come up with, and it, it started off with about the first eight or nine months of working in the pool, uh, just a lot of... Over the wintertime, it was a lot more strength type of work and, and more speed work, and then that moved into as soon as the water temperatures were tolerable to be outside, which was early May, and I guess I can use the word tolerable very lightly because it was still pretty cold, but uh, um, that's when we started our progression where we would swim half the distance. We, we do a long swim on a Saturday, and we'd swim half that distance on a Wednesday. And so that started off at 3 and 6, and this past week was 10 and 20. So we will do a maximum. We will do a, our longest swim will be 30 miles, 
mm-hmm. and that will be in about uh, three weeks. And then after that, we'll rest, and then we'll swim across the big lake. Oh, my gosh. Well, best of luck to both of you. Again on the phone is Sarah and Jeff Tao, and they'll be swimming all the way across Lake Michigan um, next month, and they're doing it to raise awareness for postpartum depression. Sarah and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. You're listening to Impact Exposure. more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You wouldn't send a text while using a chainsaw. Check out these pics of this huge tree falling. You probably wouldn't text while scuba diving. And you definitely wouldn't send a text while making out. You are so smoking hot. I love your elbows. Wait, hold on a second. Huh? I need to send this. OMG, I'm like totally kissing him right now. Dude, what the f***? So why would you send a text while driving? Well, that's different. That's what about 6,000 people who died last year said. Oh. And now, it's illegal in Michigan to read, type, or send any text from your phone while driving. It's a $100 fine for the first offense and 200 bucks after that. Ouch. Check out Michigan House Bill 4394. Be a part of the solution and save a life. And seriously, put the phone away while you're making out. Aw, come back, Cuddle Bunny. You need help. 88.9 The Impact. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Venture for America is a model based after Teach for America, where college grads spend two years at startup companies in low-cost cities, similar to Teach for America, where folks go for two years to um, a city in need and they teach kids. So here to talk about Venture for America and what it can do for Detroit is Jake LeCure and he is an MSU grad who is about to spend two years working for a startup in the Motor City. Welcome to the show, Jake. Hi, thanks for having me. So how did you hear about Venture for America? Well, actually it's kind of an interesting process. Um, I interned for uh, Detroit Venture Partners last summer and they we're kind of helping uh, get the program going. And so basically while I was there, they really kind of exposed me to it. And afterwards, um, my mentor was at TVP, and he asked me how I wanted to get involved with entrepreneurship because I really wanted to do it. And um, so he suggested the program as a good transition into it and decided to go in that direction. And I'm I'm curious with Venture for um, America. It hasn't been long, been around for very long. Maybe one or two years or so. Is that correct? This is its first year, actually. Its first year. Okay. Yep, we are the inaugural class. And in what cities does it serve? So um, we're in four cities right now. Um, there's uh, Providence, Rhode Island. There's Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, New Orleans, Las Vegas, and Detroit. So I understand that the goal was kind of just to serve low-cost cities. Um, why why low-cost cities, and why do you think they chose the cities that they did? Well, um, they see that entrepreneurship can really cause um, – it's really the center of growth around cities. Um, in these cities, because costs are, are lower in general, it allows um, a lower salary to be more livable. Mm-hmm. So companies in these cities – can actually pay a salary that they can afford and then get top-level talent. So it also allows us as graduates to have the most impact possible. So while we go to these companies and we're going to be able to give back a lot, when we're in these cities, because they are lower-cost cities, we'll be able to be more involved and have more of an impact ourselves because there's more that can be done. Can you tell me a little bit about where you will be working here in Detroit. Yeah, um, I'm going to be working at an early stage venture capital fund called uh, Raz Capital Group. Um, and eventually we will be funding early stage startups and uh, helping entrepreneurs um, build up their, uh, their dream companies. So you're finishing up five weeks of training uh, to prepare for this next two years. Do you think that the training will prepare you for the next two years? Honestly, I think the training really did a fantastic job of preparing us. Uh, we had everything ranging from 
uh, sales training, uh, to financial modeling, uh, to accounting, to sales. We had a uh, creative consultant group come in and give us training on literally uh, creative mindsets. Um, it has completely run the gamut from creativity to business modeling, uh, to web design, and even some light programming. Uh, I think that we're going to be pretty, uh, pretty well equipped for the next two years. And who teaches these, these trainings? Is it just a, a, a large array of people from different companies? or? We have one facilitator who's been, doing, um, who's been running the overall training program and planning it, um, but we have guests in every day. It can range from um, one group of guests like running a two- or three-day program to perhaps like three or four guests in a day doing an hour or two session apiece. There's a lot of entrepreneurs that come in and do, say, like an hour to two-hour session with us telling us about their experiences, what they've learned, um, and how we can learn from them. And then there's also the actual practical skill-building sessions, which tend to be at least half a day long. I understand that there are a lot of startups in Detroit. Why, why do you think that is? Um, well, Detroit has a really, really good ecosystem going right now. There's, um, believe it or not, there really is a pretty good um, culture of entrepreneurship that's building up right now. Uh, part of it is due to its uh, proximity to um, Ann Arbor, which is an incredible startup hub right now as it is. Um, and then also part of it has to do with the investment from uh, people like Dan Gilbert, who's really really putting a lot of his uh, his money behind startups and trying to get them to come to Detroit. Um, because it's a lower-cost city, like you mentioned earlier, um, startups can afford talent um, in ways that they really couldn't out in other places. So it really makes it easy, easier for a uh, person to launch a startup in Detroit. Mm-hmm. So how many folks are getting ready along with you to join Venture for America in Detroit? Right now, I believe it is 12, um, but we have a 13th possibly on the way. I see. And how do you think that Venture for America can help Detroit? Um, I mean, it's it's going to be kind of a roundabout kind of thing. Um, I mean, I don't think it's a guarantee that everyone's going to stay in Detroit for a long period of time afterwards, but I do think that there's going to be a good number of us to do. Um, everyone coming to Detroit is really passionate about the city. We're all really excited to get involved. There's um, a couple of nonprofits already in the works, um, a lot of after-school programs people are wanting to get together. Um, so not only are we going to be helping build early growth companies in Detroit that will then hopefully um, create more jobs, but we're also going to be giving back to the community itself. Now, where did you grow up? I grew up in Troy, Michigan. Okay, so fa- fairly close to Detroit in the, yep. in the general area. And what did you major in in college? I had uh, an economics major. Okay, okay. Because when I was reading about Venture for America, um, they were saying that a lot of people um, that kind of wish they could be entrepreneurs just kind of end up going into the fields of either fi- finance, consulting, or law. So that this this program was kind of started up with the idea to create more of those entrepreneurs. So I was curious to see where where you came from. Um, I'm what what jobs do you think you'd be applying for if you didn't get into Venture for America? Um, to be honest, I was really interested in startups as it was. Um, if I wasn't at Venture for America, I would probably be trying to track down another startup. Um, that or, you know, I was really considering law school. Um, I was interested in law, and there's a good chance that that would have been the direction I took. But I think this was a great way for me to kind of um, get my feet wet in the entrepreneurial world um, and have a little bit of uh, almost a, a parachute because we're protected by the FA. That insure, and so they ensure that even if the company that we're with goes under, that they'll find a new one for us. So it kind of mitigates some of the risk that we're taking and allows us to, you know, join a company that might be earlier stage and a little bit riskier um, and allows us to, you know, take, take that risk. And what do you hope to do after you're done with Venture for America? What are your career my goals? My goal is to launch my own company. Um, I'm hoping that after the two years that I'll be fully prepared to launch my own startup. Um, you know, I want to do that as soon as possible. If I can't do it immediately, then I'll probably join another startup team, um, learn as much as I can there, and then hopefully launch afterwards. Now, Venture for America's founder wants to create 100,000 jobs in the U.S. by 2025 through this program. Do you think that um, he can achieve that goal? Honestly, I do think that's possible. Um, If you look at the way a lot of venture capital firms invest in general, they invest in early-stage growth companies. Maybe they invest in, say, 100 companies over their lifetime. Um, They're not expecting all 100 companies to make it, just like Venture for America is not expecting all 100 companies to make it. 
but there's a chance that one of those companies will be a home run. Maybe one of these companies in the next few years will be the next Google, the next Twitter, the next Facebook. You know, there's a chance. And if one of those companies ends up getting that big and really has help from an early-stage founder from Venture for America, there's a chance that perhaps that person makes the decision or suggests the new product that takes them in that direction. So we're going to have a lot of companies, I think, they are going to create, you know, say, 15 or 20 jobs apiece. But then I think you're going to have a couple of home runs where you're really going to see a couple hundred jobs apiece. And I think a lot of those jobs are going to come from the direct value ads you're going to see from the Venture for America fellows. Well, on the phone is Jake LeCouillier. He is an MSU grad who's about to spend two years working for a startup in the Motor City. And he's with a program called Venture for America. Jake, thanks so much for calling in and talking to us tonight. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Researchers at MSU recently created a new biofuel process that improves energy recovery by 20 times that of existing methods. Here to talk about the project is MSU microbiologist Hema Regera. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Emily. Glad to be here. First off, can you tell me a little bit about biofuel and what it is, what it's being used for today? Um, we focus on a biofuel um, ethanol just because uh, this is the, what most of research has been directed to. But the whole idea is uh, to use a biological source to make a fuel um, that is clean and makes them a sustainable process because you are really generating fuels from uh, material that was uh, used from photosynthesis, for example. So, so it's a clean cycle from beginning to end. Now, ethanol has been a little bit controversial in the past because most people associate it with corn. And when they think about ethanol, um, you know, corn being used for fuel rather than food, they see food prices go up. But in fact, it seems like from your project, you didn't necessarily use just corn for um, your ethanol process. Is that true? It is true, and that's a, a very important consideration. There is all this fuel and food debate. Um, if you want to make the process sustainable, you have to, to use sources for your fuel that are not competing with food. So we were trying to go for agricultural waste and uh, all the waste that is left in the field after harvesting the corn kernels is the corn stover and we use that as our source to make the biofuel and make a very sustainable process and also you know, find a way to recycle the waste. Now, so this is the stuff left over in the field. So is it harder to find that that agricultural waste rather than having a field full of corn where it's readily available? You have to wait for that corn to be kind of used up, and then you use that um, that waste that's kind of left over. So is it harder to find um, those products that you're going to use for ethanol? No, and there are some estimates of the millions of tons of uh, corn stover that the farmers have to actually get out of the field before they can still, you know, plant again the, the new corn plants. So it's, it's a waste that is readily available, and, and we're trying to find uh, avenues for using it. Uh, so making it part of the fuel process um, can increase um, the cost associated or reduce the cost associated with the processing of the waste, but also make a profit out of it. Now, how does your project allow biofuel to produce 20 times more energy than what we've seen before? So the 20 times um, increases are related to the systems that we use that are called bioelectrochemical systems. Um, um, So when you try to get electricity out of corn stover only, for example, the the amount of energy that you were to recover using, you know, just getting electricity would be about 3.5%. Those are the maximum reported. We've been able to generate... um, 73%. So basically, if you burn the corn stover, uh, 73% of that energy we can get as fuels. And how does that relate to oil, or does it not relate to oil? It doesn't relate to oil because we're trying to stay away from fossil fuels and find alternatives. Um, But it does relate to the way uh, we're producing bioethanol in biorefineries right now that um, you, know, you, you can actually use corn stover, you need to treat it with acids, and then you have to use very expensive enzyme cocktails to be able to hydrolyze it and solubilize it so you can put it in a fermentation reactor, for example, to make ethanol. And uh, uh, our platform was even more competitive than that standard process. 
Mm-hmm. So I know that MSU has made commitments to rely more on renewable energy, and the state of Michigan has as well. Do you think that this this new process that you guys have been working on here at MSU can help um, the university and the state of Michigan reach reach its renewable energy goals? Absolutely. I think uh, the major solution to to our energy issues is really to have versatile technology. So more than one technology, and Michigan has been devoted to finding new avenues uh, so we can have many different approaches to solve the energy solution. Michigan State University has a trajectory, an outstanding trajectory in that regard to support those very same goals. So we felt very supported by both MSU and the state in this project, to be honest with you. And what do you see this biofuel that you've been working on used towards or for? Um, I think uh, what we are envisioning is um, um, having decentralized systems. So we could even go work at very small scales but have things similar to a compost bin or a small silage, for example. So um, many rural areas of the state or the nation can maximize the processing of waste and generate fuel. For example, ethanol could be used to power tractors. I know there are also some uh, companies that are um, um, trying to manufacture hydrogen-fed tractors, for example. So by having ethanol and hydrogen and just concentrating on transportation fuels that can satisfy the local demands of the producers, we have a major advancement already there. Again, on the phone is Hema Riguera. She is an MSU biologist, and she was a part of a team here at MSU that recently created new biofuel processes that improves energy recovery by 20 times out of ex- existing methods. So when I say energy recovery by 20 times, or when you say that, what, what does energy recovery mean? It, we just uh, uh, use a formula to calculate how much energy you can generate as heat if you were to burn a material, for example, the corn stover. And that's the, the, the energy that is available there that we're trying to recover in, in another form of energy. So um, we ethanol can also be burned and hydrogen can also be burned. And uh, that's really that percentage that we end up getting as uh, heat from ethanol combustion or hydrogen combustion out of you know, in reference to the original one, is really how we measure recoveries. So you're talking about corn stover, and is that just kind of the, the, the product of ethanol, or what is corn stover? Corn stover is the substrate. That's our raw material. That's what we feed our microorganisms, and they chew it up, and they extract that energy and convert it into products like ethanol and hydrogen that we can use as fuels. Excellent. So now that you're you're kind of finishing up this project, what's what's next in store for for you and your department? Uh, we do have um, um, continuing. We're continuing the work. Um, we have a paper that we are getting ready for submission, which we actually optimize the microbes that do this processing, so they can digest um, larger volumes of the corn stover and they can produce the ethanol much faster than the natural organism. So we, we tweak the system uh, to improve it, and we also tweak the microorganisms to make them work faster. And uh, once we have that ready, um, and the results are already very promising, we want to start scaling up, and that, that would be the next challenge. Can we adapt um, bigger, larger reactors and, and make them function as uh, electrochemical systems to produce the ethanol and the hydrogen as well. I know I've talked to people on this show before, um, MSU professors, about their work in biofuels. And so I'm seeing a lot of people here at MSU working on, on biofuels. Where does MSU rank in comparison to the nation to our research regarding, um, you know, using agricultural products and turning it into fuels? I don't know about rankings. I don't even know if there are such rankings or how to do right. that. But what I can tell you is that MSU is renowned for its efforts and quality of research and advances in uh, biofuels. And we have here some of the the best-known experts in many aspects of uh, biomass processing and biofuel production. And do you know of any other projects that are going on regarding biofuels, you know, throughout um, your department? Uh, there are a lot of uh, – my department also elsewhere, um, like um, we use uh, our corn stover, for example, is processed chemically 
And uh, this is a technology that our colleague, Bruce Dale, in chemical engineering has developed and continues to optimize. And uh, Dr. Bruce Dale is an authority in the chemical treatment of biomass. Um, so you were asking me about an important person here. MSU Bruce Dale would be one of them. We have many people here also focusing on uh, different types of substrates that could be used. Uh, algae, for example, um, uh, other types of biomass and agricultural waste, uh, bioenergy crops that could be used uh, and making bioproducts that could be potentially chemicals uh, of interest to make, um, you know, for the cosmetics in industry, for food uh, processing, etc. There are many different avenues because this is a very versatile approach to maximizing our resources. And also, we can't forget that MSU is a big component of the GLBRC, the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center that is funded by the Department of Energy to, to really advance bioethanol technologies. All right. Well, on the phone is Hema Rivera. She is an MSU microbiologist and was part of a team that recently created a new biofuel process that improves energy recovery by 20 times that of existing methods. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much, Emily. My pleasure. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. The Lansing area is home to hundreds of refugees who have been forced to flee their country. Here to talk about the refugees in the area is Shireen Timms of the Refugee Development Center. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. First off, can you tell me a little bit about the center? How did it begin and why did it begin? Yeah, um, the Refugee Development Center is an educational nonprofit that was founded uh, for refugees and also immigrants, any newcomer in the mid-Michigan area who is seeking educational services and resources to help them become self-sufficient. So a lot of the services were really created around the needs that newcomers identified um, as resources that would help them become successful. So what would you say is the proportion of refugees versus immigrants um, at the Refugee Development Center? It's mostly refugees, probably proportionately, um, although we welcome any newcomer. And how many people do you serve? Uh, last year we served 925 people. And where do most of these people come from? They actually come from all over the world. Um, mostly it follows, a lot of it follows the trends of refugee resettlement. So uh, many from Burma, from um, Bhutan or Nepal, they're uh, Bhutanese, however, they're ethnic Nepali, from Iraq, from Somalia, Cuba, um, many, many countries around the world. And what types of things are people escaping that they're having to come to the U.S. for? It's typically some level of persecution. So um, they are, in many cases, literally on the run for their lives. So some government or group has deemed them um, the wrong race, the wrong religion, uh, belonging to the wrong ethnic group, or holding the wrong political views, and so uh, they're being persecuted for essentially the package that they come in. I, I once um, was working maintenance one winter break, you know, probably my freshman year of college, and I remember um, there was a lot of refugees that work either in the cafeterias or um, in maintenance across Michigan State University's campus. Um, and I remember talking to someone specifically who was from um, Iran, and 
she was just, you know, in casual conversation talking about how she couldn't afford even a Christmas tree, couldn't afford Christmas presents, and just kind of like these basic things that I feel like most people are able to get it, you know, be able to do. I mean, she was working maybe 70, 70 hours a week just, you know, cleaning, you know, the floors and toilets across MSU's campus, you know, doing a job like that and still couldn't fill some of these, some of these basic, you know, I guess not necessarily needs, but um, objects that she would like to have. Um, and I remember asking her, you know, because I knew she had recently come from Iran, and I said, you know, is life even better here? Because, you know, thinking from my view at the time was, wow, someone can't, you know, afford these types of things. Is it is life even better here that it's, you know, a new place and you can't, you know, get along like that? But, uh, you know, she said, you know, it's way better here. Sure, I can't afford some things, but I'm not having to feel fear death every day because I don't have that specific religion. So that was very eye-opening um, for me, but I'm curious, what do what? How do most people cope to to new life in the U.S. once they've arrived? Yeah, that's a, a kind of great window into um, some of the very common feelings that people have. For sure, there's tremendous economic pressure um, that you spoke of. So um, whether they are highly educated or maybe have no formal education, many of them are in jobs um, where it's really difficult to support a family and to afford any kind of luxury items. So they, they struggle a lot um, in the early years, particularly just really trying to support themselves. Um, but as you mentioned, um, and I think it's definitely worth noting, their work ethic is, is pretty unrivaled. Um, they are very motivated. They have been through a lot. Um, they can sort of see their experience relative to a lot of the deprivation that they experienced prior to coming here, and that gives them um, a level of motivation. And they all have different ways of coping. Um, some of them, again, kind of see this as, as part of a continuum, and so they, while they may feel overwhelmed, they know that for sure life is better than where they came from. Um, many of them feel as though they've made this choice for their children. And so even if they're struggling and they may never be able to have the life that they had um, in their country, uh, for example, some of them are highly educated and they had middle and upper class lives and um, a, an economic security and then come here and don't have that. Maybe they'll never be able to reclaim that, but a lot of them find solace in knowing that at least they got their children to a country where there's some safety and there's educational opportunity and there's solace in that. Um, a lot of them uh, have a strong faith background, and so that's a way of, of you know, working through challenges um, as well as kind of trying to create their own sense of community here, both within their own groups as well as hopefully bridging out to other groups and neighbors as they make a life here. Once refugees get to the U.S., they have a little bit of financial assistance um, for them. But how long do they have until they're completely off on their own financially once they've arrived in the U.S.? It's kind of a hard thing to answer. It, it depends on circumstances and situations. But essentially, um, the Refugee Resettlement Program expects them um, to really be self-sufficient within four to six months, which means working, paying their bills. Um, you know, sometimes there's there's some support available, but again, um, it runs out very quickly, and the expectation is that as soon as they get here, they are working um, to learn the culture, to learn the systems, and um, to basically work to support themselves. And now that you've, you're obviously around these people all the time, how realistic is that to have that four- to six-month deadline? It's hard. I mean, it's it's really, really hard. Again, um, what I find really rewarding is they are incredibly motivated, um, and, and probably they wouldn't have made it here if they weren't. Um, so I think that's just that's a piece of, of many of them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the challenges don't just end after four to six months and they get a job. They, you know, new things come along. So, you know, it takes... I mean, it really, a lot of what the research tells us is it can almost take five to seven years to start for them to start to feel like they're turning the corner a little bit. And then even after that, depending on what they've experienced, their levels of education, um, their, their, um, how much English they've learned, all of those pieces then kind of help guide that, some to be, um, 
you know, a little bit more self-sufficient than others. So it, it depends on their circumstances. But they're, they're all motivated, and they all want to learn English. I mean, our English classes are always at capacity. I just found out last night from one of my teachers that 100 people showed up last night um, for English classes. So that's way beyond what we expected um, in one night. So, you know, again, it's, it's not really realistic, but I think um, people would be amazed at how motivated um, and essentially optimistic they really are. I'm thinking about a lot of people that may come here with no English skills. So how do you learn the language, try to motivate a new culture, and try to find a job? So how, how many of the refugees that come here actually already are pretty proficient in English? Uh, I would say probably most. Um, probably most are not. It depends on the country and, again, their experiences. But many of them, some might have um, survival English skills, so basic conversation, ability to get around, um, some of that, a higher percentage of them have that. But once you talk about fluency and academic English, which is, you know, there's social English and there's academic English, and so when you get into the academic English, um, it's it's much more rare um, because it, it takes a lot of education to kind of turn that corner. So they're highly motivated to learn, and I think that's the reason our classes are so full all the time. And what? tell me a little bit more of what types of services you provide at the Refugee Development Center. Uh, so our mission is around education, um, and so that breaks down into formal services and informal services. The formal services are things like the English classes for adults. Um, so we have open entry, open exit classes, as well as more structured classes along proficiency levels, everything from um, a first-level class for people who haven't had any exposure to English up through um, a level where hopefully they're in a position to be able to move on to a place like LCC and continue um, their learning. So we have that's the adult program. Um, and then we have a youth program where we've provided after-school tutoring. Uh, we've provided support groups for kids. Um, one of the things I'm really excited about is this fall, um, the Lansing Soccer Club invited the RDC to partner in creating a team um, for newcomers. And so we're just in the process of getting that off the ground. And that'll um, serve uh, it's a U12 team, so 11- and 12-year-old boys. And they um, will be a soccer team, but um, we're also going to embed in that whole experience um, an academic component to make sure that they continue to work on um, their schooling and um, a sportsmanship component, too, to kind of help uh, teach them about sportsmanship and how some of the values that you learn through sport you can apply to school and you can apply to life and um, all those kinds of things. So that's, that's a new endeavor for us, but we're really excited about it. I understand Lansing has a, a pretty large refugee community compared to most cities. Why, why is Lansing, um, why do they have so many refugees? Well, there are refugee communities all over the country, uh, but Lansing has had a great history of welcoming newcomers for a number of reasons. Um, it's considered a welcoming community, so it has a history of tolerance um, and bringing people from all over the world in. Um, it has had historically a, a good experience in helping them access um, neighborhoods and jobs and other types of opportunities because, again, the goal is for them to become self-sufficient and to become part of our neighborhoods and our city. And so those pathways um, have been created over decades and decades and are strong. And the agencies that are working with this population um, have also done, I think, and I'm not talking about the RDC, I'm talking about our partners, um, but have done a really good job about, um, again, making people feel welcome, but also working with them um, and listening to them and then developing the pathways um, that, that really help them become part of our society. How hard is it for most refugees to get to the U.S.? Less than 1% of the world's refugees are ever resettled. That's worldwide. So... Um, even a, so a fraction of that, of that percentage comes to the U.S., so it's incredibly rare. Most are never resettled. Wow. And what kind of requirements get, are, like, the chosen ones, you know, to say in that, in that way, um, you know, how, what makes them, the people that have come to, the, to Lansing, you know, what makes them special to be able to be that, you know, part of that 1%? 
It's actually a pretty rigorous process um, that has several components, but um, number one, they have to basically prove that they are eligible um, for refugee status. So being a refugee is actually a legal status, um, and it is defined as someone um, who cannot return home for fear of persecution, and then there are five categories of persecution, I believe, that um, would define someone as a refugee. So they have to demonstrate that they're actually eligible for refugee status. Um, and that's an interview process, very rigid interview process, background checks, there's health checks, um, a number of things that are put into place. So actually the time, typically the time between um, when someone flees their country and they're actually ever resettled, and again, most of them never are, um, is actually quite a long time. It can be over 10 years in many cases. Um, so it's, it's a very elaborate, long process. Where do most refugees find work once they've kind of settled here in the U.S.? What types of jobs do they usually end up getting? Um, it varies. Again, I think it depends um, a lot on their level of English when they first come. It, um, they have worked in the service industry in different areas in town. Um, there are different uh, places that have had, a, again, a great history of, of welcoming people. Um, some of them, if they are in professions that are transferable, then sometimes they eventually can move into those professions, although that's another challenge um, because the the ability to transfer your career um, from country to country is not always so simple. So you may be a doctor in your home country, but to practice medicine in this country, um, you would have to go through a very long process to get your degrees recognized um, and the licensing in place and some of those kinds of things. So some professions are more um, accessible for people, and then when you look at them years later, they are closer to those professions. Other people find that... Um, you know, those, those mountains are pretty high, and so they wind up in other types of jobs. Um, so it, it varies. The Refugee Development Center also works with Elle's Place in Lansing, or Ellie's Place in Lansing. Can you yeah. tell me about that collaboration? Yeah, that was a great partnership. Um, Ellie's Place, as you may know, is a center for um, grieving families. And um, I was approached by them a couple of years ago uh, and knew that they were just a very well-respected agency in town and um, but didn't know a lot about them. And as we started to talk, the partnership seemed like a real natural one because, um, sadly, many, almost all of our families have experienced um, trauma. Um, for sure, they've experienced death. And so as we thought more about how we could come together, we were able to put together a couple of support groups for kids um, who have experienced a death in their family. And um, Ellie's List was amazing. They worked with my staff to um, modify the curriculum so that it was culturally appropriate, so that um, the language was very simple for English language learners because our kids were still learning English. Um, and the results were really great. Um, our students responded really well and found it helpful. I remember talking to a couple of them afterwards. Uh, so the results were, were really great from the student perspective. And then it was interesting when I was talking to some of the Ellis Place staff after the first group, um, I said, you know what, this is a new demographic for you, and so what, what has your experience been like and what have you learned? And they said, well, um, for sure, one of the things that we know is that we all experience pain, and that's, a univer that's something that unites us um, universally. However, she said one of the things that was really moving um, about working with your students is that they have experienced so many losses. So when you might be talking about the loss of a family member, and then all of a sudden you're talking about the loss of another family member, and then a home, and then a country, and then um, the cycle starts all over again. And so they had been traumatized over and over and over um, by their experiences. And so that, that added a complexity and a, and a nuance that, um, you know, the staff had to work with. And again, they did a, a tremendous job. And what I really appreciated is they worked side by side with my staff. Um, so it was it was really, truly a partnership. I'm talking with Shireen Timms of the Refugee Development Center. Shireen, do you have any success stories of refugees that have come out of the Development Center? Oh, gosh. 
there's so many. Um, you know, and, and some of them are, are simple stories of um, students. We had um, just this past summer a student who was in our summer camp for new arrivals, um, didn't speak very much English at all, uh, and came back and um, wanted to be a volunteer uh, a couple of years later and, and was um, wonderful and, and felt like he needed to give back um, you know, to, to the new people. Uh, there are students that, you know, just heroic, heroic efforts every day, students who encounter challenges, um, kids that, you know, just find their experience overwhelming and then continue to come back even though um, they're not really sure how they're ever going to learn English or how they're ever going to be at grade level or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, there's, there's many, many, many great stories. Do you have any upcoming events that people can get involved with at the Refugee Development Center? Well, we are um, gearing up for our fall programming, so that will um, involve some after-school tutoring with our K-12 students as well as um, a continuation of our English classes. So if anybody is interested in volunteering, um, they can visit our website for more information. And uh, as I say, we're looking to get a soccer team together, so... Maybe some of those games our kids could use some cheering. All right. Well, on the phone is Shireen Tim. She's with the Refugee Development Center, um, which is home to that that works with about about 900 refugees every single year, located here in Lansing. So, Shireen Tims, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. All right. Bye bye. Bye. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For the Michigan Storytelling segment, this is Angelina Mosier. So, you know, for spring break, we think of, yo, PCB, <laughs> I'm going to go to Florida, what up? Um, but I kind of had a little different spring break. Uh, I found myself in Palestine um, at a pretty revolutionary conference, um, committed to peace and justice. So uh, this piece is on my experience. Biruh bidam naftiki ya Palestine. Vertical structure of solid mocks me. Smiling. With large concrete panel teeth, teeth with gaps, gaps of land in between where it seems teeth are missing. And wires act as awkward braces stretching across uncomfortable spaces. A poor attempt to cover the cavities, straighten the sinister smile and strengthen security. Yeah, we tagged graffiti. It was L-O-V-E sprawled across those panel teeth. Street art that rivaled even Banksy. Speaking loudly, reverberating off the walls, echoing all the way to the sea. Because roadblocks can't block dreams. So I say, let them shoot. My spray can is my gun and I'm for the truth. Thank you, Mr. Williams and Ayo Saul. Do you know how it came to be? Yeah, yeah, this wall. Yeah, you might not believe me, but what had happened was, is someone sneezed. <laughs> yeah, you see this guy, the, the academic one, with a balding head and round glasses with maps, graphs, and satellite graphics. The line from his pencil demarcated the line that is so strangely straying from the green line. And as Pinocchio's nose grows through his lies, the length of this line lies in the wealth of lies, which is two times the green line. Shajur wasijin, shu haida yeshabab. The leaves on the uprooted trees shake, but in the face of uprooted trees, I dig deeper and plant the seeds of defiance that are watered by weeping widows. Ammunition stones packed in our pockets, ready to fire. Fire flames, passion burning, smoldering, burning tires, fires, burning tires, fires. Exterior boundary walls and retaining walls cannot retain the revolutionary ideas sprawled on Facebook walls. And Occupy Wall Street could learn a lot from Occupy Philistine, the longest standing occupation in history. So move, march. 
march, gather the people, hustle, shuffle, walk it out, two-step it, and let the trumpets sound, and the people shout, because it's going down, just like the walls of Jericho came down, the walls of fear, distrust, hate must fall. And my frame may seem small against this concrete wall. But I dare you, I dare you to layer your bodies upon the gears, upon the gears and the levers of this odious machine, the sheen that is supported by your complacency and passivity. Silence is not an insurance policy. It is your conscience policy. And a civil rights leader once told me, that's not if you're going to live or die because people are dying every day. It's if you're going to be ashamed to die until you win a victory for humanity. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was Angelina Mosier. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure. 